I think with Americans, if you can generalize, and we sure can, I think we're allergic to nuance, maybe, um, <laughs> and, and, and sort of... That's just on my business card, by the Hey guys, I'm Carlos Miranda, and welcome to What Donors Want, a podcast by IG Advisors. I started IG in 2011, and we're a London-based social impact strategy consultancy on a mission to bridge the gap between fundraisers, corporates, and philanthropists. At IG, we have unique access to both donors and fundraisers and want to help them better understand one another. And so we bring you What Donors Want, a fresh, dynamic, and slightly irreverent view into Major Gifts fundraising from the donor's perspective. In each episode, we'll interview a donor and get right down to it. What do they actually want from the fundraisers who cultivate them? This advice and more straight from the donor's mouth. Welcome back to What Donors Want. I'm Rachel Stephenson-Chef, and I work with Carlos at IG. I'm also the producer of What Donors Want, and I'm so excited to share this next episode with you. We hosted our second live recording with a live studio audience, where we spoke with Andy Bryant, executive director of the Siegel Family Foundation. It was a really incredible morning. Thank you to everyone who came out, and enjoy the episode. Welcome, everyone, to our live recording of What Donors Want. For listeners, we're coming at you live from the Hospital Club in Covent Garden. It's a brilliant London sunny morning. We're wearing Britney headset mics. It's, uh, it's a pretty good scene, for those of you who aren't here. And I'm going to turn it over to Carlos Miranda, IG's founder, who's going to introduce today's guest. Well, thank you very much for that, Rachel. Uh, welcome, everyone. It's a pleasure having you all here this morning. Uh, I am thrilled to be here. This is our second live recording, uh, and I think we've really stepped it up. This is an amazing live audience. Uh, so what are we here to talk about? Well, we're here to talk with our wonderful guest, Andy. Rachel will introduce Andy, but I just want to talk a little bit about the Siegel Family Foundation, which Andy is the executive director of. Um, so the Siegel Family Foundation is among the most generous and influential international development funders. Based between the U.S. and East Africa, they believe in a world where development is steered by grassroots leaders and power is shifted into the hands of communities. Their mission is to change the power dynamics inherent in traditional philanthropy and prove that a new, more equitable and responsive approach is not only more fair, but also more effective. The foundation funds 200 organizations working in more than 20 countries in Sub-Saharan Africa, uh, for example, through their highly praised African Visionary Fellowship, which I'm sure we will learn a lot more about. Yes. And of course, we are thrilled to be here live with Andy Bryant, the foundation's executive director. Guided by his belief that local solutions are the best solutions, Andy leads the foundation's team and implements the vision of the Siegel family. Since joining, he has overseen an increase in the foundation's annual giving from 2 million US dollars in 2010 to over 12 million US dollars in 2017. He's worked in international development in many years in Africa and Asia, including positions with the Tanzanian Children's Fund and TechnoServe. Andy completed a BA from Princeton University in 2003 and subsequently graduated from Syracuse University in 2007 with an MPA in International Development. He also served as a Princeton in Africa Fellow. He currently serves on the board of directors for Como Learning Centers, Last Mile Health, and Spark Microgrants. And, uh, and finally, of course, we want to send a huge thank you to Andy and to the entire Siegel family and the foundation for making today's live recording possible. Uh, we're really excited to be here. So thank you for Me that. Too. Let's give thank a big you. round of applause to our fabulous guest. 
All right, this is my favorite part of the podcast. All right, exactly. So part of our irreverent brand is always starting our podcast episodes off with a speed round of silly questions. And that's to be fun, but it's also to promote the idea that donors are actually people and he has a job just like we all do and we all binge watch shows and it's really important to remember that. So full disclosure, Andy has not seen these questions and this is live, so... You know. he's, he's sweating. Look, yeah. look at the nerve uh, <laughs> Some compassion for sure, but pretty harmless. And mm -hmm. uh, you know the drill. You've That's what you think. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> you've, uh, you've, you've heard our, our episodes before. So. Your wife is here. We should maybe ask all these questions of your wife. Yeah, maybe, like, why, would, why, why would Andy say? <laughs> My spokesperson yeah, exactly. and boss. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So I think we're going to dive into it. Question number one. What was the last show that you binge watched? Bachelor in Paradise. All right, so if the world was going to end tomorrow, what would your last meal be? Ooh, Masala Zone. We had an amazing uh, Indian uh, meal last night just mm, down the street. All right. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, who is your dream dinner guest, dead or alive? Ooh. How about my two kids, my four kids, excuse me, my two stepchildren and my two babies when they're adults. Oh, wow. Ooh, that's and all, And then they Deep. can just vent. Okay. Yeah. All right. Oh, my God. All their dad issues. Yeah. <laughs> So what is your next dream travel destination? Nairobi, Kenya for our annual meeting next week. Mm. Oh, okay. I get to see 200, actually 400 people that I love. Fund, funder friends, mm. all of our grantee partners. That's awesome. Yeah. What is your favorite guilty pleasure movie? So The Bachelor in Paradise hasn't been a feature film yet. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good idea, though. Yeah. Oh, gosh, I don't know. Let's see. Probably, um, oh, When in Rome, Love Actually. Yeah. yeah. I agree. That's great. Given that you're based in Jersey, Springsteen or Bon Jovi? Mm, Got to go with the, uh, the boss, mm -hmm. Springsteen. <laughs> Sweet or savory? Savory. Coffee or tea? Coffee. In fact, my resting state is sort of lethargic and confused. <laughs> so I, I pump myself full of caffeine every day. Beach or snow? Beach or snow. Oh, snow. You can always dress up. You can't dress down when it's too hot. I agree. You're both wrong, but okay. <laughs> um, if you could be the lead singer of any cover band, which cover band would you choose? Oh, that's a great question. I think Journey. Oh, all right. Yeah, yeah okay. we don't stop believing at Seagulls. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Perpetual okay. optimist. Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> Okay, you've done the speed round. That's Officially, it. That's, that's it. it. You that's survived. Right. I'm out of here. <laughs> Thanks, everyone, for coming. That was the hardest part. Um, I hope that was some good advice. <laughs> and, okay, so on to the second part of the podcast, which is, of course, the meat of why we're here. This is deep diving into your work at the Siegel Family Foundation. So, Andy, as Siegel's executive director, can you give us an overview of your primary responsibilities in this role? Sure, yeah, and I thought I would frame this through our, our core values, mm -hmm. so bear with me. Um, the first of our values is be bold. And so me being here, tapping my feet, knees quaking, is, is an example of me being bold and going out on a limb. Um, in our work, though, it means that we place fairly high-risk bets on really early stage and mostly African-led organizations with unproven impact and, and, and largely unproven concepts, but we believe in the visionary leadership of the organizations. We believe it's important to support uh, local solutions and local rock stars. So that's a way we sort of are bold and punch above our weight. The second is around building community, and I mentioned our annual meeting coming up in Nairobi next week. Um, and the idea is just to create sort of a, an even playing field, and sometimes that's a dirty word or a dirty phrase, but we want to create a, a nice, safe space where donors and doers come together in an equitable fashion, where there's not sort of this power dynamic that's inherent in traditional philanthropy. Um, easier said than done. The third uh, core value is learn and innovate, so we kind of jam two together. And I think the way we sort of practice this is trying to be just painfully transparent. Um, my cheat sheet today is our theory of change. It also doubles as a placemat um, 
for the millions listening at home, this is a huge piece of paper. Um, but this is on our website, along with most of our grant-making processes, and I, I think probably more information than any would-be grantee or, or, or funder friend would care to absorb. But we're trying to sort of open up our seedy underbelly of how things work or don't work at Siegel Family and, and, and lay it all out there, for better or worse. And we learn a lot when people say, that's really dumb how you do things in this way. And we say, well, either we justify it or we try to make changes. The reason I brought this cheat sheet is I didn't want to get this next one wrong. Our fourth core value is fighting for fairness. And the tagline is, we use our platform because we have power, but others who are deserving do not. And Carlos, you sent out a really cool tweet yesterday or maybe the day before um, saying, it's been, a, it's been a tough week. No, he said, it's been a tough week and I want to name check our rock star team, um, who are mostly young women from the sounds of it. And I wanted to name check our team um, really quickly, I promise. Beatrice, Carolyn, uh, Dato, Denise, uh, Katie, Catherine, Liana, uh, Patricia, Rose, Sarah, and Virgil. And these 13 fellow Siegel family rock stars um, are either women, African, or sexual minorities, or a combination of those three. And they oftentimes don't get a platform like this. And I, by virtue of having a cool title and not necessarily my tremendous wit and charm, do get these kind of opportunities. So I wanted to sort of give them a shout out. And there's another group of, of people who aren't represented, which are our partners. The final one uh, is trust. And at Siegel Family, we kind of over time have realized that we need to flip trust on its head, too. It's our obligation as funders to earn the trust of our grantees, not the other way around. Um, and one of the ways we do that is that we are constantly championing our partners. I wish that we had more of our grantees uh, here today. We only have one brave soul, Sasha, from Spark Microgrants here. Um, but we are proactive champions of our partners. We're trying to constantly uh, convince other funders uh, to open their purse strings um, and cut checks to our partners because we vouch for them. We, we know them really well, and we're proud of the work they do, and we think it needs to sort of grow. So those are sort of our four, five uh, core values. What that means is I basically don't do much except for speak to people, try to convince people of our good work, um, our good taste and partners, and then sort of oversee the fantastic work of our team in East Africa and New Jersey. All right. Very cool answer. Um, so unlike many other large foundations, right, Siegel has an open application portal on its website that invites applications from organizations on a rolling basis. You can see everybody checking their phones right now being like, what? <laughs> um, this can be both a blessing and a curse for fundraisers, right? Because it's easier to apply, but harder to stand out. So when does relationship building come into the grant making process for you guys? Sort of in a roundabout way. I mean, it, it comes before anyone would apply. Um, the reason being is we do have an open application portal for better or worse, as he said. Um, it's, a it's a dictate from the board of directors. They wanted to keep things open and, and us basically open uh, and receptive to new ideas, um, unfamiliar organizations and, and work. But by and large, everything that comes through our application portal, um, those successful grant seekers are coming with the strong vouch uh, from trusted grantees, existing grantees, and funder friends. And so there's not a lot of folks who are coming to us completely unfamiliar and actually succeeding. We've tried to, you know, we recognize that, that having an open application process means that a lot of people um, are applying that are not successful. So we've tried to pare down the application to, as, to be as unburdensome as possible. And we take the bold step of completing the application ourselves periodically to see just how painful it is and how time consuming it is, which is a good, by the way, a good recommendation I would say for donors in general is just slog through your own processes and see how painful it is. That's cool. Yeah. And would you advise organizations to submit to the, through the online portal without reaching out first and trying to develop a relationship? No, 
Not at all, no. Um, and the thing is, is we have nine East African staff on the ground across four country offices, uh, Kenya, uh, Tanzania, Rwanda, and Malawi. So if you're operating in, one, in a country in East Africa, there's a really good chance you're going to come across our staff or some of our other partners, and you should be able to build some of those relationships and understand how the foundation works or, or doesn't, um, sort of our idiosyncrasies before you have to apply. Yeah. I think that's really interesting to hear because oftentimes the, the open portal can be very tempting because it's, it seems yeah. easier, but relationship building is everything. So that's it's very cool to hear that. So once an application has been submitted and assuming that there has been some relationship building as part of that, can you give us a glimpse into your typical due diligence processes? Who are the internal stakeholders that need to be bought in? Sure. Um, like a little history here. Um, back in 2010, when I started with Siegel Family Foundation, I was parachuting into East Africa four or five times a year. Uh, I would visit an organization, Kenya Healthcare Org, in the afternoon for a few hours after a long, dusty ride. Maybe I was jet-lagged, maybe I hadn't had enough coffee for the day. And then running a diligence of sorts, you know, trying to understand that organization's worth and their place in the, the landscape of Kenya Healthcare, uh, coming back to the States and pitching them to the board and making really what is a momentous decision for an early-stage org. Our money can be catalytic and the lack of it can be debilitating, perhaps. And that felt really insufficient and, frankly, irresponsible. Um, so that was our sort of eureka moment when we started building a team on the ground and actually establishing some bona fides as having some localized knowledge and boots on the ground and being able to tap into the grapevine of who's doing good work and, and, and maybe not. So long story short, our diligence process pretty much begins and ends in East Africa with our programs team. Our program staff in each of these countries that we focus on uh, are constructing country strategies. They're looking for places where our small dollars and our grants run from 10 to 100,000 you know, small depending on the room you're in, I guess, right? We try to pick our spots, you know? So in Kenya, it might be STEM education that matters, and in Uganda, it might be disability rights. Um, we're trying to understand, identify sectors uh, and places where our fairly small dollars can be catalytic and meaningful, um, and perhaps sort of start a, a little bit of a trajectory um, for those organizations to build uh, stronger and bigger revenue in organizations. Um, so the country strategy is the start. Uh, and then our program staff on the ground are, are sort of running typical diligence processes, calls, site visits, document review, um, pinging our networks to try to understand how good, bad, or ugly an organization's operating. Um, and then they're bringing it to our, uh, to our greater team on a monthly basis. We do have these monthly grant calls, and it's a five-hour slog, combination of Zoom, Skype, WhatsApp, um, Telegraph, whatever we can do to communicate across a bunch of countries. And we're sort of democratically slogging through a, a decision around an organization, trying to place it in the context of our portfolio, in the context of the country in which they're working, and, and making a, I hope, more responsible decision than what we used to. Mm -hmm. That's great. And a quick follow-up question to that. So on your website, you state that organizations are more likely to be considered for a grant if they're small and early stage, but also if they demonstrate at least two years of operations and successful fundraising. So we're wondering, what does demonstrating successful fundraising look like to you, look well, like to a fundraiser? Firstly, that sounds like a contradiction, doesn't it? We may need to rephrase that on our website. <laughs> I guess what it sounds like is it's a Goldilocks situation, and that's what it is. We're looking yeah. for a certain type of organization. So <laughs> we don't think we can support organizations that have no track record whatsoever, yeah. but we also feel like our sweet spot is to come in fairly early mm -hmm. um, with orgs with just a couple years um, and working their way towards a proof of concept and be meaningful with our capacity building our dollars. Mm -hmm. um, but the question was... <laughs> so what, what does successful fundraising look like to you? If an organization was trying to demonstrate that they were in a healthy <clears throat> financial position, oh, right. what would they need to demonstrate? What kind of materials would they need to show you? Yeah, I mean, I think most of the organizations are coming into our portfolio with, with 
median budget of like 150,000, so really small folks. But in that Fit 150, you find friends and family money, maybe a couple of institutional funders, people with foundation in the name, maybe a little bit of bilateral or INGO pass-through. Um, but I mean, a successful track record of actually having written some grants and, uh, and, and won them. Um, the reason being is, you know, um, we're really trying to support an organization's growth in their revenue, and if they don't have sort of that resource magnetism to begin with, it's gonna be really challenging to support them to, to, to grow that. So we've talked a little bit about the fact that the Siegel Foundation is a family foundation, right? And that's a unique entity in many respects, right? Um, can you tell us a little bit about the role of the family when it comes to the strategy of the organization and kind of the decision-making process and what your role as executive director is in, this, in that context? The person between a rock and a hard place is what the ED is. No. Um, I was trying to think of the perfect metaphor for this, and I came up with a really imperfect one, which is I feel like I'm the sort of the, a rock in a fast-moving river, and sort of the family is this bedrock that sort of provides the lane of the river, the banks, mm. and the bank, no yeah. pun intended. Um, and then our staff on the ground are this sort of fast-moving, um, dynamic river itself, and I'm sort of getting rubbed between the two. Um, but, I mean, basically my role is to represent the family's broad strokes vision, um, interpret it, and then take the incredibly fast-moving logic of our team and try to interpret that in turn. So I'm a bit of a translator. Um, the family provides, has basically given us a lot of agency, an amazing amount of agency as a staff to figure out how things should work on the ground. To their credit, they've recognized that like a well-meaning Jewish family in New Jersey that made their money in sh construction materials is not the best place folks to be designing sort of community development agendas in East Africa. Um, and they've actually hired up East Africans, and so I get to be this, this, this awesome sort of cipher between the two. And occasionally, you know, um, occasionally sort of the, the family foundation caveat comes up, or, or maybe that's your next question around sort of when we get random stuff coming our way. Um, but sometimes that random stuff is the most, are the, the best kind of bets, and we have a lot of grantees in our portfolio that came from the family, as opposed to our diligence process that are our longest standing and favorites. And I mean, yes, that was going to be my follow-up question, so <laughs> points for you. Um, but, but what happens, though, because we, we do work with a lot of family foundations, right? And, and sometimes, no matter how good the strategy, no matter how good the staff, a project comes along that is not focused on what you're supposed to be doing, doesn't fit your theory of change, doesn't fit your strategy. Kind of talk us a little bit about that process. Is there a, is there a separate fund? For projects like that, what happens when you come across a project where a family member really wants to fund something that's kind of outside of scope and strategy? Yeah, the process is pretty straightforward. We fund it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sounds pretty And we have, slapped, we have slapped a lot of monikers on, on these. We've, we called it, um, for a while we called it cocktail gives, you know? Boss mm -hmm. goes to a cocktail, meets someone really cool and dynamic, and on Monday morning you, you hear that you're 10K in the hole <laughs> to a new org, and you gotta figure out, okay, well, they legally... Like, can we get a tax exempt out of this? Um, then we called it uh, the Special Opportunities Fund. Um, <laughs> for a time, we called it the Oddball Fund. That didn't fly. Uh. Um, no, but you know, like I mentioned, you know, um, the the awesome thing about having an an excellent team that is really sort of trying to think through the really specific and focused challenges facing communities in, in Sub-Saharan Africa is that they are they are really tunnel visioned in a, in a positive way, which means that we bring in very homogenous, awesome and visionary organizations, but homogenous. And so it's actually the beauty of a family foundation. There's a sort of outlet for bringing in zany, oddball, special opportunities. 
um, from cocktail parties. I'm just combining them all in one sentence. Um, and like I said, you know, that's where some of our awesome, our, our best grantees, you know, Sasha from Spark Microgrants, not to toot your horn too much, but my boss, Barry Siegel, gave her $2,000 when she was graduating from University of Vermont about nine years ago. He said, you seem like a nice young Jewish girl. I don't know what you're doing. I'm not sure it makes sense, but here's two grand. Go to Africa, have fun. <laughs> that was her first two grand. She's now got a $2 million uh, operating budget. Um, they're reaching hundreds of communities across East Africa with this sort of model of community-driven development. I would consider her like this roaring success. I'm also on the board, so I'm completely biased. Um, <laughs> But that came because of his sort of zany, contrarian attitude. So the family stuff is the, the, some of the best stuff. And are there any tips that you guys, you know, th that you would have to fundraisers out there, kind of a little bit more general, when approaching a family foundation? Is there anything from the point of view of cultivation, stewarding? Is there anything kind of unique, not necessarily to you guys, but to the family foundation world that you would recommend to fundraisers? Yeah, this would be a great question for some of the NGOs in the audience. Um, an exasperating one, I'm sure. Um, yeah, I mean, I think with when you're approaching family foundations, you recognize, like with any sales, right? You're look, you're trying to identify the needs of your customer, um, and I think with family foundations, doubly so relative to maybe mega grantors or other f sources of funding, um, you're looking at sort of the needs of the organization. Yes, like what does Siegel family want? I mean, read through the guidelines; they're all there on the website. Um, but what is, and, but you, I think you also look, need to look at it at sort of like an individual level. What, what, what speaks to that person? And that's where you need to sort of go through a, like a decision tree. There's no real prescription for family foundations because they're all so different and bizarre. Um, you know, high net worth eccentric is sort of a redundant term. Um, but I think, you know, you need to think about like, how do you communicate with, a, with this individual? You know, are they a KPI guy or are they a heartstrings anecdote person? You know, are they an email person or are they sort of like, you need to come visit me in person person, right? And there's a few simple questions you can kind of develop sort of like almost like a unique menu for each, for each individual family foundation. And that's a pain in the butt, but um, I think ultimately lead to more success. Yeah, that's a great answer. So moving on to uh, more idiosyncratic things. So we, we often get asked about the characteristics of American donors. We get asked this all the time in the UK and how fundraisers outside of the States. So for example, many of the people in this room and people who are listening, how can they tailor their approach to, to engage them? So Andy, as a US-based funder who grants to organizations all over the world, A, do you notice a difference in the way that you're cultivated from non-American fundraisers? And B, do you have any tips? Sure. Um, well, firstly, I like to think of us as an Africa-based funder. That's where our heart is, and that's where our decision-making happens. And it just happens to be that sort of the family and the money exist in the States. Um, but looking at our sort of our principles, our family, you know, I think with Americans, if you can generalize, and we sure can, um, I think we're allergic to nuance, maybe, um, and, and, and sort of... That's just sort of my business card. <laughs> allergic to nuance. Yeah. I mean, get to the point, right? You know, I, I find it... it one of the things that, um, that a lot of our African visionary partners have asked us to do is help polish their pitches, you know, move them from um, a, a sort of a, a, a circuitous route to a really straightforward one. Move us from a six-minute description of your work to the 30-second version. And I think that probably resonates with a lot of American funders. It's kind of duh, but, you know, the more you can be really straightforward and, straightforward and blunt um, and try to get to the value proposition as quickly as possible, I think you'll find more success there. Absolutely. And how do you feel about directness around figures and direct solicitations? Do you find that there's a difference as well in how people approach that specific moment of the relationship? Or are there any tips around that? 
I mean, I don't know if it's an, if like a lot of funders and maybe only American funders or maybe funders in general. I flip to the last page of everyone's proposal, right? The budget. I want to understand sort of what we're getting. Um, and we don't bother ourselves with things like overheads, kind of consider it like, uh, like making the sausage. I kind of want to know what's going into the factory and see what's coming out, but I definitely don't want to understand what's happening in the middle. Um, so we sort of try to look at impact from that sort of initial input proposition. But yeah, no, I think that's the, the most important. I think we're figure-centric, yeah. We want to get to a budget, we want to get to a point, and certainly with an ask, yeah. Um, tell us what you need, um, and hopefully we'll meet it, and we'll do it in the form of unrestricted funding. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So when you say that overheads don't matter, you, you mean that you are very comfortable funding them. What you want to see are the numbers around direct program delivery and impact. Yeah, I don't, yeah. I don't care where you spend money. Mm -hmm. I just want to see that impact at the end of the day, you know? It might, some, you know, the, and every model is different, right? Some people might have to put an incredible amount of money into fundraising and, and London side or US side uh, spend in order to accomplish something awesome on the ground in Burundi. Um, C'est la vie, you know, we'll take it as long as that something gets accomplished on the ground in Burundi. I think every NGO in here and every organization in here is like, oh my God, please tell that to every single one of our donors. Yeah. <laughs> so you, you've won a lot of fans. Yes, definitely. <laughs> um, so you've touched on kind of why it's, that it's important to you guys to kind of challenge the power dynamics in traditional philanthropy. Um, tell us kind of why is that important to you? Like, what do you care? Yeah, so, well, I'll, I'll give you a stat. Uh, we looked at our own, we looked at the revenue of all of our 200, actually about 300 partners, so a lot of former partners as well. Uh, as much clean revenue data as we could get, as many years, um, we sort of kicked out some outliers and had to s still a decent sort of sample size. And what we found was our African-led partners grew half as quickly as our expat-led partners when they came in sort of similar size, stage of maturity, budget. Um, and then we took a closer look at that and we realized like the, the impact from per dollar for the African-led organizations, the locally-led organizations, was oftentimes as good or better than some of the expat-led efforts. And then we started questioning why. And there's a lot of bad reasons why. Um, they don't have tax-exempt status. They're not 501c3s in the States or the equivalent in the UK or elsewhere. Um, oftentimes, they don't have sort of Western donor networks in place because they didn't go to MIT. Uh, they didn't grow up as a Boston Brahmin or, a, or whatever the equivalent is in, in, in here. Um, they didn't have boards or champions, people to raise money on their behalf. And, and we kind of thought that that was unjust. Um, yeah, reverting back to the impact proposition, we, we saw that Oftentimes, local solutions are more impactful because people have lived in a place and understand that place better than anyone, any one of us ever could, parachuting in, like I mentioned. Um, they're more sustainable. If you think of things like the Ebola scourge, um, when Ebola happened in Liberia and Guinea and Sierra Leone, uh, INGOs bounced. All the expats left. I mean, I'm being a little bit hyperbolic, but you know, the people left providing basic health, education, livelihood services for millions of people in West Africa were, in fact, those local organizations. Same thing with political turmoil. Um, there was an attempted coup in Burundi a few years back in 2015, and Save the Children was gone. Um, a lot of the INGOs operating there were gone. EU money fled, 45% of their budget gone overnight. The people left holding the bag were Burundian organizations, healthcare providers and educators. So when I say sustainable, I mean, there's enough of these sort of hiccups um, to put it lightly, that you know, there's a real value proposition. And frankly, yeah, it's justice. Um, we kind of think choice should be pushed as close to the beneficiary of those choices as possible. In other words, self-determination, right? We need to have people, like, 
Burundians should be leading Burundian community development. That sounds like fairly simple, but it's actually not done. You know, 98% of, of, of foreign aid uh, in Sub-Saharan Africa goes towards international organizations. What's left is 2%. 2% of, of, of funding goes directly to local organizations. That's bananas, right? What if that was the case here, you know, like, or anywhere in the West? Um, it's just plain unjust. And so that's sort of why we get on a soapbox about this stuff. Um, and that was where the Africa Visionary Fellowship was born. Um, we basically skimmed our most exemplary local rock star partners. We put them into this fellowship. We capitalized the A, the V, and the F to make it sound super important um, and formal. And then we asked them, okay, now then, now what? And we, we, we put all of our Africa Visionary Fellows in the first year in a room and locked the door. And Siegel family's team left, and we gave them two hours. They stayed for four, and they came out and they said, listen, this is what we need from you. This is how we need you to help us juice our revenue and convince Western funders that we are awesome, and we can be even more awesome than some of the expat-led efforts out there. And that was another eureka moment for us, which is that we can do this. Um, and since then, that's really become, we've become fixated, focused, um, rabid about sort of pursuing this notion of local solutions are the best solutions. And it's been borne out. These, the, these organizations are growing really quickly. The capacity building that they've asked us to provide, not that we've prescribed for them, uh, I think is helping their, their organizational health. Um, and they're becoming more resilient and stronger. And they're definitely becoming more badass. We take them to Skull World Forum, for example, last April. And they're pitching to Western funders. And they are like shining on like the same platform and pedestal as some of the expat rock stars. Um, and like this isn't to give short shrift. You know, we have a lot of awesome expat-led organizations in our portfolio, um, but they just have more advantages and more opportunities. You know, we're trying to do affirmative action in a way here. That's Great answer. Amazing. I'll step down from the soapbox. <laughs> no, stay <Sorry>. up there. <laughs> You're, the 21st century version of a soapbox is a podcast. So it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> so it's fine. Exactly, and yeah. that's that's an amazing answer. Okay, so now getting getting back into those relationships and uh, with your grantees. So, what is the most common mistake that fundraisers or organizations make with the Siegel Family Foundation? Well, two things. So, firstly, you know, um, not finding those, those those common touchstones. So, if you're if you're a Kenyan uh, nonprofit, if you don't know one of our fifty five partners or our five staff based in Nairobi, then it's kind of weird. You know, it's not, it's a huge country geographically. It's a small country when it comes to just the, the creme de la creme of innovation and visionary local organizations. Um, so if you can't find those people, build relationships with them and cite them in your application, then that's an issue. And secondly, it's just, is, is reading the fine print. Um, and we try not to make it fine. We put it in like 16 font. Um, but you know, we've got a, a compendium of different things we're looking for or not looking for on our website. And I hope, I hope it's a sufficient amount of detail where you know that would be a two-hour waste of my time to apply, or I'm genuinely suited. And there's no greater sort of convincer of oneself that one is suited than an NGO applicant. Like they can talk. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know, if you're if you're really sort of objective about it, I think that there's enough in detail there that you can figure out a yay or nay on whether to pull the trigger on an application. Yeah. It's your website's quite detailed. Thank yeah. <laughs> Wait, is that an insult or a comment? No, it's a good thing. <laughs> it's a good thing. It's, it's absolutely right. People would be, it'd be very easy to figure out if you were aligned. Well, to that point, you know, I think as, as funders, and not to call out UK and, and continental Europe, but I mean, there's a lot of funders that operate in a very black boxy approach, like with minimal information, if any, right? Mm -hmm. um, it's exasperating when I have a call with a funder and I can't look online and find just minimal information uh, on them. Um, and it's, Confusing too. I don't. I just don't understand why you don't want to sort of push as much information towards a grant seeker as possible. Um, it's. A, I think there's ego. There's sort of some 
miscarriage of justice there. There's a lot of things that go into it, um, but it is, um, I think, pretty inefficient as yeah, well. Yeah, definitely. So you've already singled out in a wonderful way, Sasha, and Spark Microgrants. But can you go a little bit into more detail of kind of who's your dream partner, your dream grantee, and what, what, kind of what are their key attributes, and why do you look for them? Yeah, sure. Um, if I close my eyes and think about our dream grantee, I think of a lot of dream grantees, but I also actually come back to our, our team in East Africa. We've hired up and built our organization the image of the partners that we seek to support with grant funding. So I think about the characteristics of our team, and I think they all have wildly ambitious ideas. They all have some track record of actually doing. They have strong CVs. Despite sort of being in the clouds with their ambition, they're firmly tethered to the ground in the form of, like, they are community-driven. Um, and what that means in terms of a grantee is actually real, like, legitimate feedback mechanisms. Um, and you can actually yay or nay on that, you know? Um, you can tell from a site visit, from reading through an organization's documents and stuff, whether or not they are legitimately committed to sort of hearing and incorporating the voices of their beneficiaries in their work. Um, for us at Siegel Family, it means doing these closed door, throw away the key kind of sessions with grantees where we say, what are we doing wrong? What are we doing right? You know, and semi-anonymous sort of feedback. We did a, what's called a grantee perception report this last year where we, we, got it, we paid 30 grand to have our partners tell us the good, bad, and the ugly of our work. Um, turns out we're awesome at some things and we stink at other things, like answering emails. Terribly unresponsive, one of the worst funders there. Um, and so that was actually really good uh, eye-opening food for thought. Um, and so we want partners that similarly are willing to take the good, bad, and the ugly from their beneficiaries um, through legit feedback mechanisms. And I think uh, the other thing, you know, we, I think we idolize, we lionize the, the social entrepreneurs at the helm of, the of our partners. It's a concept called heropreneurship, right? Yeah. It was written by someone at school, and they said basically, like, we just need to stop worshiping at the altar of these individual social entrepreneurs. And, like, yeah, I agree. But also, like, the organizations that are coming to our portfolio are so small that, like, the vision and the thought leadership is usually captured in one person. So that's fine. That's a starting point. But what we want to see is a commitment and, like, legit commitment to sharing that thought leadership over the time. The desire to build out a bench so that, yeah, if the hit by the bus thing happens or if you win the Nobel Prize and move on to something bigger and better, there's an incredibly visionary organization in your wake and not just your own vision. That's great. So have, well, you sort of touched on this before, but we'll ask it anyway in case something comes to mind. But have there been instances when an organization, and maybe something not coming from one of the family members, but something coming from you and your team and, and the relationship building process, have there been instances when one of those applicants has knocked it out of the park so much that you've decided to make a more risky or more unusual grant that's a little bit outside of scope? Yeah, we even invented entire programs to do this. For a while, we, what did we have? We called it surge funding. And it was a three-year, just like $500,000 grant um, to, to a select number of partners. And we kind of did away with it because we realized that we were, we were building a program around some rock stars when it, we actually just needed to call it a one-off kind of thing. But yeah, and it is a lot of, it is a lot of these sort of Africa Visionary Fellow organizations that, um, where they've been eking along doing tremendous work, reaching tens of thousands of beneficiaries on 50 grand. Um, just ridiculous return on investment for an early stage organization. Um, and, we, and we just couldn't help ourselves but to make a big bet, take them from ten dollars to $100,000, which for us is a big transformative grant overnight, so that they could hire that dev director. And lo and behold, you see them grow from fifty to 500 in a year because they actually had someone other than the founder writing grants and actually being able to put time and effort and specialize uh, in going out and doing this, this sales job. So once a grant has been committed, 
What are the most common mistakes you see organizations making that kind of turn you off from committing additional support? Yeah, like I, I suppose it's pretty straightforward. People who don't follow up, um, you know, I think, and I understand like you put so much energy into winning this grant and like we're trying to be unburdensome, but frankly, we're still a burden on an organization, which means that there's probably a fair amount of uh, relief and, and excitement about winning that grant, but then the enthusiasm and the momentum can't stop there. You know, we need people to stick to their reporting guidelines, and that's really simple. Like, that's basic housekeeping, but, it, you know, you'd be surprised how often people don't hit those marks. Again, we're trying to be painfully transparent about, you know, this is when we need to sort of hear from you, and you gave us your milestones. For the most part, we're asking partners for milestones, not trying to make up a new set to be a, a burden. Um, yeah, Report against those things that you told us you would by such and such a date, and we'll try to turn around and be and reciprocate, right? And that's something that funders don't necessarily do all that well is reciprocate and hit our marks with deadlines, but we're trying to to be the change we want to see in the world. Amazing. Yeah. <laughs> so many. I love it. All right. Well, I think it just uh, this is perfect timing. So final question from us, and then we're going to open it up to you guys. <clears throat> so what is the one key thing that you would want a listener to take away from this conversation? I think the one thing is, un is unfortunately, a ch a an exasperating one and a challenging one for a grant seeker is that if you've met one funder, you've met one funder. Um, you know, every, every funder I've ever met is, is materially different in their processes, in their taste, uh, in the way that they want to be sold or pitch to. So you really, there's no, there's no recipe, there's no prescription for how you engage funders. It's that decision tree. It's a series of this or that that takes you to developing sort of a unique profile for that funder that can ideally be useful uh, in engaging them. And you just have to trot that out. And it's a lot of upfront work, but I think ultimately it'll pay off at a higher sort of rate than kind of a one-size-fits-all approach. And that might sound like common sense, but you know, I see it in our most successful partners. that They actually put in that legwork upfront to develop those unique profiles and like those are the folks who are building their budgets and, and their revenues growing at a good clip. Yeah, yeah. We, we've heard that from all guests pretty much. Yeah. yeah. Oh, well, it's, no, it's a good thing. Yeah. No, it's a great thing. I <laughs> think not especially any. <laughs> but I think it's so interesting. We've had such a diverse range of people that we've interviewed, and they've all said that same thing, that it's, it needs to be bespoke and it needs to be a partnership. So it's great to hear it echoed. Right Amazing. All right, so okay. we are going to... Flip it over to you guys. Hand. We've got two floating mics, one at the back and one at the front. If anyone has any questions for Andy. And please introduce yourself and say yes. what organization you're from. Exactly. And your voice will be on the podcast. So, yes. <laughs> full disclosure. Hello. I'm from Scope. My name's Sabina. Uh, yeah, you talked a bit about trust. And I just wanted to ask you a bit about, um, yeah, so how you start to kind of trust the charity and what they do to build that up with you. Um, but also what you think is reasonable for a charity to kind of expect to trust a funder. So um, I used to work for Waterade and various other places and we'd have a lot of debates about when should a potential funder go and see the work or when should, I think a lot of charities have this debate basically of when can we trust the funders serious enough in us to want to go out and see the work and when, yeah, like that balance, I guess. Yeah. Um, I try to shy away from comparing these relationships to sort of real-world relationships, you know, but a lot of trust is born of this sort of time, effort, uh, listening, and execution. That was, that's my, uh, my um, T-E-L-E, tele, yeah. Um, yeah, for us, I mean, we've put in a lot. We, we, the nice thing we have is that we have our team on the ground, and so we're, we're connecting with funders and interacting and pr or grantees 
all the time. We've got cocktail parties, we've got workshops, we've got our annual meeting, we've got all these sort of in-person gatherings. There's no real substitute for that. I think that in-person time is what breeds that trust and reciprocity, uh, sort of the grounds for a, a real relationship. That's a great question in terms of from the grantee's perspective of when you can start trusting a funder. I think one's bitten twice shy and probably every grantee's been bitten. Um, so I, the NGOs are right to be cautious and sort of um, being honest and open about like their challenges. I was listening, I was in a, on a panel the other day and someone, and it was the release of a report around capacity building. One of the thing was like, from the onset, there should be open communications between <laughs> grantees and funders. And it's like, what? If I was a grantee, I wouldn't be openly communicating what, like what keeps me up at night or like what scares me or what problems or challenges we're facing from day one. That's complete rubbish. Just oh, look at that. Ah. Oh, yeah. I was going to say bullshit. <laughs> and now I said it, so now it was Very lost. British. Um, yeah, I would, and, and we don't expect that. You know, you have to put in sort of sweat equity and, and honest to goodness time. And, and that's one of the reasons like we're trying to expose our own sort of heartaches, flaws, what keeps us up at night so that there is a feeling of reciprocity. Um, and we have the luxury of doing that earlier. And we understand that it's going to take a couple years before grantees can can do it in turn. And that's, yeah, and ideally through those touch points on the ground, you start building that relationship where that feels possible. And it's not always possible, and that's very fair, and we get that, you know? Hi, um, Pippa Garland, a charity lawyer at Bates Bells Braithwaite. Firstly, thank you so much for what was a really informative <laughs> and entertaining discussion. I think we all really enjoyed it. You. Um, you've spoken quite a lot about your country's strategy at Seagull Foundation and the many benefits that have come from that. Um, and it makes a lot of sense, and I suppose you almost wonder, why is everyone not doing this? So I wonder if you could speak a little bit about the challenges that you faced when you were moving towards that country strategy and any challenges ongoing in managing that international network now. Let's see. Yeah, yeah, we, and <laughs> it's definitely not a fully formed concept. We've had a bunch of iterations. Like I think we've had something that basically looked like an encyclopedia and probably was copy and pasted from it saying, you know, in Kenya there's 33 million people and blah, 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 blah. Um, moving towards a point that's actually a useful and usable document. Um, and it is, a, our country strategies are essentially three, four page docs that say like, here's the stuff that we would tell you that we wouldn't share publicly. You know, like these are the people you can trust. If you wanna, if you're a funder parachuting into Kenya, these are the sort of um, health key informants you wanna talk to. And these are the folks you don't wanna talk to. And these are the organizations that function highly and these are the ones that don't. So a lot of it's sort of our taste and, and our landscape analysis. Um, and I think the challenge in developing that was, A, like, that we actually had good intel. And so that's about hiring better and better people on the ground. Uh, and B, sharing um, how we can sort of ride this fine balance between um, having legit, honest intel that's usable and, and helpful for funders to make their lives easier and more efficient and lead them to awesome organizations more quickly. And frankly, getting ourselves in hot water. Because as a registered organization in all these countries and having staff from those countries, and in some cases expats who could easily get bounced quickly, we're, we have to be really sort of smart and judicious with how we share that information. Um, and not all of our funder relationships are created equal. There's folks that we can trust and there's folks that we wouldn't share that information with. So that's, I think, been the, the biggest challenge. And then the second piece is just having like updated info. It's just a constant labor to keep this stuff fresh, right? Because things change so quickly. Uh, at least in the context of these countries in East Africa where we're really focusing. Um, the political economy, um, those trusted informants, that stuff changes really quickly. And so just like keeping that on paper in an accurate way is really a big, a big challenge. 
Well, this has been a load of fun. I'm Sasha from Spark Microgrants. I'm the lucky, <laughs> the lucky person <laughs> who got some Kickstarter friends from Barry Siegel. Yeah. <laughs> I think the Siegel Foundation's known for um, really listening to grantee partners, listening to folks on the ground and taking feedback from them, which is very unique for a funder. I'm curious if there's um, some feedback that you guys have gotten from one of your grantee partners that has resonated with you and actually changed Siegel Foundation's strategy. Yeah. Maybe to speak a little bit more broadly, I think a, a, a long time ago we thought that capacity building was always useful. Um, and I think a lot of funders think this way, that capacity building, the worst capacity building is awesome and the best capacity building is really awesome. And that's sort of the spectrum, right, of anything apart from cutting a check. I think over time we've realized, in fact, it's from awful, debilitating, gross, and useless to pretty good. And then most of it's sort of like, meh, it's okay. Um, so I think that's one of the biggest things is we've sort of shifted our, 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 our thinking from let's figure out ways like we know best and let's figure out ways that we can do more than cut checks to partners to a piece of capacity building is almost like guilty till proven innocent. Like unless it, it's obviously valuable to partners and obviously going to be a net positive uh, and not sort of cost them so much in time and treasure, their valuable time, frankly, um, then we'll, 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 we'll roll it out. Um, and the other thing I think is multi-year funding. If, if, I think when we surveyed our partners and they've been honest and we said, well, you know, what would be most useful? They say, uh, more money. <laughs> more money, more unrestricted funding, more multi-year funding, more connections to other people's funding, and then like capacity building and other stuff like that, right? And that's been a biggest, the biggest piece of feedback that we've actually turned into something I think that's valuable for partners. It seems pretty obvious, but it wasn't for us, so, you know. That's great. Okay, we have, I think, about two or three more minutes. So, any other? Yeah, we can take sort of two more, I think. Yeah, maybe. Hi, and then. <clears throat> Seth Cochran from Operation Fistula. Uh, Andy, I love this idea of the decision tree, you know, like trying to work through these different, these different sort of funder profiles or personas. And you mentioned two, two sort of dichotomies, the KPI guy or the heartstrings or, you know, the email or the in-person. I wonder if you have any more sort of general dichotomies that you would that you would kind of help us build our decision tree with? Yeah, I think one of the biggest pieces is, um, oh, another thing is around who do they want to connect with? I guess we approach it, we want to meet the janitor. Like, we want to meet the big thought leader and carrier of the vision, and so, you know, the person who gets to go to all the conferences. And then we want to meet the drivers, and we want to understand, like, hey, what's the mission of this organization? And if they can spit it out, not necessarily verbatim, but with, like, some understanding of, like, what they're doing because they're probably not paid what a driver in a private, like for a bank would be paid, right? So there has to be some other compensation in the form of buying into that vision that the, the, the bigwig is carrying. Um, so that's one thing, but, oh, sorry, so that's our approach. But I know a lot of funders who I think are really, really smart and do a great job of diligence, and they only want to talk to the thought leader. And so there's been a lot of site visits that have just, I've, I've talked to funders who I respect, and they're just like, oh my God, they asked me to talk to the driver. And I was like, what the hell? And you're like, well, that's because we told them you should talk to the driver, my bad. <laughs> um, you know, so just asking that question is like pretty straightforward. Um, what was the other one I was thinking of? I guess in terms of also, like, what, is, what does the funder want to be doing? Like, we want to be, we're gung-ho. We want to like embrace this, like almost build a family, familial connection with our partners. And we, wanna, and we do want to try to figure out how to go quickly from, from a basic understanding of what they do to what they don't do well and how we can support that. Um, I think other funders don't necessarily want that sort of want to play an advisory role or want to be sort of in on like inside baseball or inside the sausage factory. And they want to sort of ha have things at arm's length. They want to receive reporting and, and sort of like, you know, have a very managed sort of thin relationship. You know, and I think that's it's fair. It might be because of time. It might be because of their 
their sort of comfort level with engaging with their partners, you know, who knows, but yeah, it's something to figure out pretty early on. That's great. All right, we have time for one more. Go Hi, for thank you. My name is Andrea from WaterAid. Um, we do agree the local solution is the best solutions um, and prioritizing building capacity is really important. Um, but we also see the value in global um, organizations linking local solutions to share learning, support, global policy, etc. Et so do you see the value in country offices of INGOs um, with local staff and local-led um, strategies? Sure. Yeah. And, you know, I, and like I mentioned, you know, we have a lot of awesome expat-led orgs and relatively larger orgs. You know, so, for example, Chai is in our portfolio, Clinton Health Access Initiative, a gazillion-dollar org. Um, but we found a way for, to, with a country office in Uganda, in fact, where they've connected with our local partners and been really benevolent supporters of, of raising their capacity, plugging them into contraceptive supply chains. Long story short, they're playing nice with our community of partners. Um, and so I think that, you know, it really depends country by country. I would say we're engaging with a lot of country offices of INGOs and trying to build a big tent and a lot of connectivity between local rock stars, INGOs who are willing to get outside the gates and outside the land cruisers uh, and understand the context in which they're working and hire up local, awesome local staff. And there's a place for those folks. And ideally, those, are, those two parties are also connecting in a fair and equitable way with funders in that country in question. That's some of the work we're trying to do is this sort of big tent building, yeah. All right, I think we are bang on time. That is awesome. Um, well, thank you, everyone. This, uh, this wraps up the podcast for today. Just a few quick thank yous. First to the Hospital Club. Thank you for having us in this beautiful room and these trendy lights and Brittany and mics. Brittany mics. <laughs> Brittany mics. It's, uh, it's pretty fab. And, uh, and of course, thank you to all of you guys for coming. Thank you for subscribing. We're on iTunes. We're on SoundCloud. Please do subscribe if you haven't already. Leave us a review, all that good stuff. And uh, thank you for supporting us. And then, of course, finally, to end, and to the Siegel Family Foundation. Thank you for being here, for sharing all of your generous insights and for making today possible. We're so grateful. It's our absolute honor and privilege. Thank you, guys, really. And on behalf of the family and the staff and our partners, this is fantastic. And not as scary as it was an hour and a half ago. Oh, good. Good, 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 good. <laughs> Amazing. Well, I'd also like to add a big thank you uh, to Rachel, who actually has worked so hard on every single one of our podcasts. She is the common denominator. She's the one voice that you always hear. But obviously, putting on a live recording, there's a lot more logistics and a whole lot. And she's worked very, very hard oh, uh, from, from, from Canada for the most part. Yeah, um, a bit jet lagged. Yeah. It's all good. Um, but so she's been amazing. So anyway, so just to echo, thank you so much for, to, to Andy, to the Siegel Family Foundation, to Rachel, and to all thank of you. you. Um, thank you guys for coming. Yeah, thank, thank you. you. Thank you, Carlos. Thanks for listening to another episode of What Donors Want. There are so many thank yous to say. Firstly, to the Hospital Club for their fabulous space and Brittany Mikes. Secondly, to everyone who attended the event. The room was packed and you made us feel so snazzy. And finally, of course, a huge thank you to Andy Bryant for his generous time and advice and to the Siegel Family Foundation for making this all possible. We're really such fans of what you do and unbelievably grateful to have your perspective on the show. So stay tuned for our last big episode of the year coming shortly. We're also deep into the podcast planning for next year, so please do continue to reach out to us with questions and thoughts. You can check us out online at impactandgrowth.com. Say hello to us on Twitter. Our handle is at IG underscore advisors, or you can come to one of our next events in London. Okay, that's all I got to say. Thanks again for listening. See you soon. Bye.